Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture bugle. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's show, you're about as fun as a Cold War. We're delighted to have satirical collage king Cold War Steve with us to talk about his new book, Journal of the Plague Year. We've also got the unalloyed joy of two doctors making an appearance. Firm friends Dr Robert of the Blow Monkeys and former Doctor Who Peter Capaldi come in to chat. Andrew is in hog heaven. And we'll be listening to new albums by Blur's multitask absentee landlord Damon Albarn and Mr Smooth of Vintage Psychedelic Soul Curtis Harding all this and more in today's Dimensionally Transcendental Culture Bunker Hello and welcome once more to the Culture Bunker. We're delighted to have the modern-day Hogarth, the Hieronymus Bosch of political cut-and-paste, Cold War Steve is with us today. Formerly known as Chris Spencer, Cold War Steve came to life after, it seems, Chris found a snow globe on the motorway. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for a lovely introduction there. For listeners who don't know your stuff, I mean, it's all there in Journal of the Plague Year. It is this unique collage of famous people who seem to represent the most horrifying sides of Britain put in these kind of familiar <laughs> but surreal situations. I just opened a page at random and it's the cast of GB News, which includes Prince Philip in a top hat, the actual black and white minstrels, Julia Hartley Brewer <laughs> on roller skates, what appears to be possibly Pan's people, I can't quite tell, Jim Davidson. It's like a, like a nightmare outpouring of your, <laughs> of your psyche. Uh, and people have shared this all over the place, all over social media. Why do yeah. you think it's connected so much? Um, I don't know. I think and you, you're right there in, in the assessment of it being a, a, an almost nightmare psychic, you know, psychic explosion from from my brain because every piece that I do really is is my way of dealing with what I'm seeing on the news or, or reading about and that's how it it began really as a kind of therapy for me to channel my anxieties or anger most of the time mm-hmm. um, into a way that rather than doing what I would have done previously is, is, is to get drunk and rant about how much I hate. <laughs> to be fair, that's what most of us would do. Yeah, yeah. like rant about Andrew mm. Neal and his, you know, and all this. I channel it into a, a, a piece of art that I hope makes people think and laugh with humour. It's satire. It really gets the point home. Yeah. When did you realise that you were onto something? You were posting these things on Twitter. Apparently someone told me you do you did them on the bus to work. Who was picking up on it? And, and when did you suddenly think, hey, I've, I've got something here? Yeah, um, the early, early years of Cold War Steve, it, was, it literally was just a picture of Steve McFadden <laughs> with a bottle of whiskey or, or post-crack session um, in a Cold War scene. So with Reagan or Gorbachev or... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was just the joke. So it's just an incongruity joke, mm. which I would do on the bus on the way to work, just as something mm. to do, really. And, and it got inexplicably popular. <laughs> and I just kind of ran with it for a, for a while. And it became a bit more, as I got better at editing and cutting and pasting and stuff. But then really the, the moment 
came when the, of the um, Brexit referendum and the results came in on that mm-hmm. night. I was just in a complete state of, I mean, it would be come as no surprise to, to listeners if they know me that I'm a, quite a hard, ardent Remainer. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> may come across. Um, and it, I was just absolutely devastated. What have we done? What, you know, country is going to be left for my children? And it's just mm-hmm. horrible. Mm-hmm. It's, so I started to get that anxiety where normally, like I said, I would have just tried to blot it out with drink or, or whatever. But I decided to try and channel it into these collages that I'd been making so mm-hmm. they became a bit more satirical a bit more political and it grew and grew and, and then I got an iPad and started doing one there and then I then got he went pro <laughs> and it went you know and then and he sold, sold out, out sold out <laughs> I've gone from a DIY punk band into some horrible um, yeah you too yeah, know yeah. <laughs> he's gone stadium absolutely but we still love it we'll be yeah. talking to Chris later in the show but first a small reminder you can get the Culture Bunker and all of our shows early and without ad when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture and more every day. Plus, we've got a new benefit for Patreon people. We're taking requests. If you can suggest a tune for us to play in clip form on the show, we will do our best to clear it. Suggest it in the comments on our Patreon page. Post a link to the song. We've had some already. We're going to be working our way through them soon. We will see what we can play for you. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more about our splendid benefits. Now, he was a foul-mouthed political spin doctor, an immortal time traveller, George Harrison, King Charles I, Sid's dad in skins, and the Angel Islington. He was the silken-voiced crooner and prime mover of politically engaged soul warriors the Blow Monkeys, they've been back together since 2007, and the oppo for house goddess Kim Maisel on one of the greatest records ever made, Wait. And when they got together, it was... Quite interesting. It's Peter Capaldi and Dr. Roberts. Peter Capaldi has made an album with Dr. Roberts of the Blow Monkeys, and it's out next week. What's it all about? How did they meet? Who is the most Scottish of the two? <laughs> We're going to meet them after this. This is the opening track from Peter Capaldi's album, St. Christopher. This is Beautiful and Weird. It's also called <laughs> Beautiful and Weird. <laughs> So this is a major crossover edition for me. The Two Doctors, and it's in Spain. Hello, Peter Capaldi, how are you? Very well, thank you. And hello, Dr. Robert Howard of the Blow Monkeys, how are you? I'm also very well, thank you. Robert, how long have you guys known each other? How, how did you actually meet? Well, um, <clears throat> known each other probably, I don't know, four or five years now. Well, I live here permanently, just south of Granada in the valley. And uh, so we met a few mutual friends, although I had spotted Peter about 10 years ago, maybe longer, actually, and said to my wife, I think the guy from the thick of it is in the bar down there. And, and you, always, <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> this is the sort of place this is. It can get a bit stellar street, won't it? Uh, and then a mutual friend who will be known as Jar Biff, I think he'll enjoy the publicity, right. introduced us. And because uh, I knew Peter played and stuff. And i a bit of a tart that way. I'll go to any party and play. So uh, <laughs> that's how we met. We met at Biff's party and, and just kind of... Um, Took it from there. Yeah, we were sort of deliberately brought together 
because uh, Jabif thought it would be a, something that worked, and he was, I think, right. Obviously, I'm a you know a big music fan, and I, I knew of Robert, but I didn't really know of him. We were at one of the parties that sometimes happens out here, and he's such an extraordinary musician that he's able to bring out his guitar and and play for two hours endlessly and, and, and hugely entertainingly anything that anybody asked him to play. And I thought, wow, that's he's the real thing. You know, and a lot of things that people don't ask me to play. Yeah. You've got to remember that I started up with a busker and I often think that I may end up there as well again. <laughs> Term does tend to become a loop. It's a remarkable record, very Leonard Cohen, lots of love, loss, hard-won experience. There's a great line in there, nothing is ever as it seems in our Meghan Markle dreams. <laughs> oh, do you worship at the uh, at the altar of Laughing Land then, Peter? Because he's, he's, he's yeah, present well, I'm, almost, I'm really surprised really that so many people have, have mentioned Leonard Cohen. I, mean, I love Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan and, and all of those guys. Strange enough, it's late in life that I've got into them. As a kid, I was more of the, of the Bowie and, 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 and Pistols and kind of sort of uh, influence. Maybe it's, it's just that when you re- if you're making your debut album and you're 63 years old, some of the traditional <laughs> uh, subject matter of uh, rock and roll is uh, closed down to you. So you may find yourself you know, investigating melancholia uh, uh, more than others. Late starters often, well, you were also an early starter because you famously had a punk band with Craig Ferguson when you were an art student called the Dream Boys, yeah. which does sum it up Magic Mike and the Chippendales a little bit more than punk rock. <laughs> it is the, ter- the most terrible name ever for a band. It's a terrible mistake. Because we were at art school, we actually thought we yeah. were doing something pretentious, Kafka-esque and Dr. Caligari. <laughs> you know, we thought we were invoking nightmares. But you must remember that was so long ago. There was no Magic Mike. There was no Chippendales. There were no Dream yes. Boys except us. <laughs> well, you had a product diversification line there. You could have followed. Did it nag away at you over the years? That because you know, you're on this incredible path and you're playing these amazing roles, going to these incredible places. Was there a voice at the back of your head going, "But what if I decided to rock instead? How, how different would life have been?" No, I think you know, life is just. Uh, I've never really been able to exercise any control over it. You know, I've tried and, and been pained by the effort that that has taken, and so th- I've just been enormously, you know, lucky. Good things have happened to me as well. You know, like anybody, any life, you know, some things aren't so great. But I've had wonderful opportunities, wonderful good fortune, and and I don't wish it was any other way. I am where I am, you know. When you brought the songs to Robert, I mean, you say uh, they are varying, but did you have your own sound? The sound is not the Blow Monkeys, and presumably you had heard the Blow Monkeys before. Were they fully formed in that way and that had that atmosphere and the mood that you wanted? I think they probably, in essence, they probably hanker back to when I stopped doing music, which was, mm-hmm. uh, was about 23. So they're, they're, they're probably art school, Glasgow, Noirish pseudo-goth kind of uh, <laughs> You're harking back to the dream yeah. boys, aren't you? Yeah, melancholia. Yeah, you know, it's pretty Franz Ferdinand. But, yeah. I think, but I think that was appropriate because I think Glasgow's a very, um, a very cinematic kind of place. So it was kind of going around in my head a lot of the time. So, mm. Are you a hard taskmaster? Do you tell Robert to turn you up or to do this or change this? Or is it the other way around and you get told off by Robert? You know, I'm not a professional musician. I haven't done this. I'm just just playing around Mm. when I was, you know, in in my 20s having a go. Robert spent his entire life (laughs) devoted to this art and craft, you know, so there's Mm. a level of of, of skill and taste that that I simply don't have. So I 
always defer to, you defer. to his taste yeah. in, 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 in these matters. It's almost kind of a religious kind of thing, music. I think it's mm. in you and you have to work at it. But I don't, for a moment, equate myself with any of these guys. Robert, does Peter play on the album? Is there Capaldi guitar on here? Yes. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of solos on there, which only Peter could play, I think, because they're coming from somewhere right. else. They're coming, you know, they're on his original Garage Band demos, which I kind of worked on and changed. And I did a lot of the kind of the, the, the basic stuff like rhythm. It's just, you know, getting the right feel for things, making it feel solid as a bass that we could put things on. That's my instinct. But, you know, I was able to call on people like Mick Talbot and Crispin from Galliano, who plays with the Blow Monkeys now, to kind of embellish things and to, to play on it. I played a lot of bass myself because I love playing bass because I used to do that on Paul Weller's albums. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, I love doing that and not being the main man, not being the singer. And mm-hmm. it may not sound like a Blow Monkeys album, but you got to remember when we started out, you know, I want it to be like the birthday party. Yeah. <laughs> I want it to be like, you know, Laughing Clowns was my big influence in Australia. So we, when we first started out, we used to get gigs as support to goth bands like X and Sisters of Mercy. And the, the people look at us and think, what's this all about? So there was a bit of that in there still. But that's not what we, what we became known for. So, you know, I've got, you know obviously I've, I've worked in a lot of other areas outside of that, but everyone kind of knows us mostly for you know, that period of digging your scene and that stuff. Peter, a lot of this is very personal stuff lyrically. There's a moving song called A Little Bit of Class, which is addressed to a woman who was part of a family and now is gone. And we meet her as she's watching Ready, Steady, Go. Who's it about? It's more about a, t- a type of... Well, do you know what it's really about? I thought it was just a nostalgic song uh, because I remember as a kid, you know, I grew up in a tenement in Glasgow and it was very common, you know, for people to have sing songs and all that stuff. But it was in the 60s, obviously. I was a little kid at the beginning of the 60s. So I can remember seeing people, I can remember seeing what would have been women to me, but we were obviously young, who had a kind of look of ready, steady, go about them. And mm-hmm. they, they were bringing the kind of swinging 60s to in, into our life a little bit. And, and when I started this song, that's what I thought it was about. But then I began to think really what it's about is... Uh, COVID, you know, I was kind of very conscious of the fact that Mm. somehow all all the people who were dying of COVID were depersonalized, that we never really knew who they were. Still to to this day, we just get these Mm. numbers. And who who are these people? And particularly at the start of it, you know, there was a lot of elderly people. And so in a way, I thought, well, this is one of them. You know, this is somebody Mm. who was around in the 60s and was a kid in the 60s and then was taken. Sorry to vote down on it. <laughs> no, no, but it's, like, it's a quite a meditative record, isn't it? Yeah, I love that. There's a lot of experience. One of my favourite songs that I instantly related to that when he sent me the demo that because I knew a lot of, you know, what was her name in the song? Muriel. Muriels. I knew a lot of them. They were always turning up at our house. Yeah. Distant relatives with... <laughs> with strange clothes and makeup and coming from another world, you know, into my little house in Kings Lynn. And I really related to that sitting around the dinner table, just totally fascinated. My grandmother was a bit like that. She seemed to be to be glamorous and come down once a year, you know, and sit yeah. at the table with a hat with a fruit salad on and we try not to <laughs> laugh, you know. And the stories and it's so it really hit home that one. I thought it was beautiful. And also it's sort of that a little bit a class was a line that people used to describe somebody who was a really yeah, Va- uh, you know, a mensch, a really yeah. valuable mm. person, you know, somebody, mm. who was, somebody who was good, who really was the real thing. Peter, you've played like countless roles and you're about to be Siegfried Sassoon in Benediction, apparently. 
Yeah. What can you tell us about this? Well, I, I, I've done it. Uh, so it's uh, right. uh, it's a film with uh, that's been directed, written and directed by Terence Davies, who is the, you know, I think one of the greatest filmmakers that the UK has ever produced. Did a fabulous film called Distant Voices Still Lives yeah. some years ago, which was a, a perfect evocation of a very you know, difficult and abusive and yet also love-filled uh, Liverpool childhood. Quite a lot of murals in it as well. It's a very murally film. It's quite mm-hmm. a lot of like Titanic old ladies in it, mm-hmm. as I recall. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point. You know, it is, but it's also what he's doing is 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 he's he's evoking uh, the lives of a kind of class of people that, that aren't normally enshrined in poetry. Mm. There's a marvelous scene in it where they have a sing song. It's in a pub. Yeah. And it's just these tracking, these slow, slow tracking shots as everybody and everybody joins in. There's no, I can't remember what the song is. They're saying it's incredibly moving, and these films do that. You know, you think, oh, this is just a bit of hard, you know, realistic kind of stuff, and then suddenly there'll be some poetic moment that takes the feet from under you. So um, when he asked me to do this film, I was just thrilled because I'd do anything uh, that he wanted me to do. I play the clearly the older Siegfried Sassoon. Jack Loudon, who's an incredible uh, young actor, plays fantastically the young uh, Siegfried, who is uh, in most of the movie. I sort of bookend um, <laughs> But uh, it was fantastic. And Terence is just, uh, you know, he's a kind of master. So it's wonderful to work with him because you trust him so completely. The way he directs you is very, very specific and very uh, detailed. And uh, he gets what he wants, and he moves on. And that's fabulous. He's, he's a kind of there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of people like that around anymore. He struggles to finance his films. They're not very expensive films, and really, he should, they should just give him money to make films because he's <laughs> he's mm. a, a poet of this of, of the UK. Your signature roles are, of course, Malcolm Tucker and the Doctor. We're now 16 years on from Malcolm Tucker's debut. And at the time, he seemed like a kind of a monster. Now, from where we are now, he seems almost like an idealist, doesn't he, Malcolm? At least he believes in something, unlike this lot. How do you look back on Malcolm now from the vantage point of 2021? I think with sadness, really, what we've come to. People often ask me, what would Malcolm think about this? What would Malcolm think about that? And I wouldn't even want to give where we are the grace of having a comic. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna come up with uh, comic notions about what's going on or the government we have or how they conduct themselves. Um, I don't think it's funny. That's not a donor, sorry, but I don't I don't think I've got Malcolm, I've got nothing, as as Malcolm I have nothing to say about this because it is uh, out of order. And people have to wake up to that. There is an extent to which if when you're making comedy or satirizing something you are almost normalising it. Yeah. Saying that this is part of the real functioning world. You can joke about it. And when we joke about things, we say it's actually not that serious. Well, this is enormously serious. It's not possible to satirise this government. Yeah, it's not a joke, you know. So I'm not going to make jokes about it. I'll tell you what he would think about it. He's better than a lot of that. Well, this is the strange thing, because at the time he was presented as this kind of terrible, you know, as I say, a monster of politics. But particularly in his final scenes, you see there is like there's a real idealism underneath all that. He actually does believe in things. Well, he understood what was happening, which was that that, that, that politicians had to become. It was more important that they were popular than that they said things that were valuable. It was more, that's what he, now that was his job. His job was to make them popular. But he, that's why he was kind of, I always thought it was a, a wonderful kind of 
black-hearted clone, really. He was a clone standing on the abyss because he knew that what he was doing was his job was to take any shit that went on and make it look okay. So his hands would be full. In a way, he's he's part of the architect of this, but I think he was smart enough to know that that was not really a, a good thing to do, but he was good at it. Now, I swore I'd hold off on the Doctor Who stuff for as long as I can, but I just can't hold it back. Because it wasn't just a role to you, was it? Like me, you were a member of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society in your youth, I believe. I believe that you and I can do the, the secret handshake. I don't think I ever was actually technically a member of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. I mean, I mean, it would just be a general term that, that is banded okay. around to corral youngsters who were crazy about that particular show. Yeah. But you did famously have a letter printed in the Radio Times. I did? Did you? On there. Did you have a letter printed? No, but I, I didn't. I know. I never got a letter in the Radio Times. I remember the special that you wrote in about, which had instructions on how to build your own Dalek, and you wrote in praising them on their marvellous special. And you're yeah. absolutely right on this. I mean, what do you look back on with most fondness from doing the role? Because that's that role is almost like being a national football manager, isn't it? You carry the hopes of a nation on your shoulders. Oh, well, there's lots of things. I mean, it is absolutely wonderful to wake I mean, I used to bounce out of bed in the morning at, at, at six o'clock. <laughs> then I'm like, yeah. Shall I go, I'm going to be Doctor Who today and go down to the studio <laughs> and know that I'd be blowing up Daleks or, you know, I love the smell of latex in the morning because that is <laughs> usually what greeted me was some, some people who'd been for hours getting things done to their faces and turned into monsters. And doing all that was fantastic and being, you know, I used to quite like sort of a little quiet moments of the TARDIS that I could have to myself. I liked when Sometimes there would be a, I mean, the thing about Doctor Who is it's a very labor intensive job because there's literally no time, not enough time to learn the lines. There's not enough time to shoot the show. So you are working, working, working all the time. And sometimes you can't do the preparation that you'd like to do. As you know, I, I mean, yes, I, I'm a Doctor Who fan, but I'm also a professional actor. So I like to come with a certain degree of craft and preparation. And, and sometimes you just didn't have that time. Uh, but, but it was kind of okay that that's when being a Doctor Who fan kind of helped. Because everything, as everything collapsed around me, I knew that I was able to touch something that, 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 that was, uh, I felt, uh, genuinely Doctor Who-ish uh, that came from inside me uh, and that didn't have to be prepared I remember reading that you you had actually uh, decided not to audition for it in the mid-90s when it was going to be yeah. a TV movie because you couldn't take the heartbreak of not being offered it. Had <laughs> you had the Doctor in your head for the years? This is how my Doctor would be. This is how I would do it. No, I didn't. You know, I think it's slightly... It's true that as a kid, I was a huge Doctor Who fan. I think it played into the branding of the show mm. to sell me that way when I came along. You know, so it's slightly, I'm not saying it wasn't true, but I think it was rather kind of overemphasized and everybody ran with right. it because that's, that's a fun story. But I did not spend my life thinking about Doctor Who or grieving about the fact that I wasn't <laughs> Doctor Who or thinking I should be <laughs> Doctor Who. You know, mm. I was very happy to do, I did an episode with David Tennant and I thought that would be my contribution. It's great. And David was, was wonderful and sweet and showed me around the TARDIS and all that. And that was very exciting. And I thought that would be the last I'd I'd have to do with it, apart from bumping into David from time to time and staring at him. (laughs) Yes. But then they they, they asked me to be the doctor. It it, it seemed to me so unlikely. I didn't think that was a direction they were going to go in and talk at all. Uh, And I was thrilled. I thought the thing that made it clear you what to do was you knew what to do with the hands. 
It's very important with doctors. The hands got to go up and do this a lot. I know this is a podcast and the cop people can't hear, but the hands are up. Well, it's very yes, it's very John Pertwee and Tom Baker used to. They all used to. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you'll see David Bowie does it as well. <laughs> he yeah, does. Well, he's, David Bowie, of course, the great lost doctor. Yeah. Is that it? So much. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Oh no, you got to do all that. But I like to do. It. I was slightly taking the Mickey out of it as well. I love doing it. You know. I have to ask you this. In a world in which there had been a thick of it Doctor Who crossover, what would Malcolm and the Doctor made of each other? I think, yes, I think there would have been an, uh, the, 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 one of those Pertwee-esque takedowns uh, yes. of, of, of Malcolm by the Doctor. I think he would have cornered him in the, in the, in, in, by some nuclear reactor that while Malcolm was trying to cover up the fact <laughs> that, it, that, that there was a fissure in the nuclear reactor <laughs> and that radioactive material was about to, giant maggots were about to emerge. <laughs> and Malcolm would be trying to say, "No, they're not giant maggots. They will actually uh, once they they, they decompose, <laughs> they actually you know help the soil. They turn into a marvelous new food stuff." He'd say, "What like are you that. doing? What are you doing, man? Don't you realize what you are? Un- what's unfolding here?" And he'd give him oh, yeah. get the cold sweat now. Oh, I know he's he's, yeah. he's talking my language. But really, what I always think was, uh, I always wanted to do a, a Doctor Who. Um, I wanted Doctor Who to to meet Robert Johnson, an old blues player. So I think that scene at, at, at the crossroads when Robert Johnson yeah. goes to meet the devil to learn about the blues. Yeah, there was probably the sound of a TARDIS in the distance there, yeah. and it turns out that the devil is the master. Cold open title sequence. But also that, yeah. I also think the Doctor should have. Um, I think the Doctor probably invented the wah wah pedal. Okay. I think probably, well, you were the first one to have a guitar in the TARDIS. Yeah, but I, think probably, I think you helped Jimi Hendrix out on an occasion. <laughs> <laughs> in an episode, obviously, with the spiders from Mars. The there spiders you go. Well, Mars. the spiders on Mars yeah. by Terence Dix. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Robert and Peter Capaldi, it's been fantastic talking to you. But Robert, the Blow Monkeys are also back, back, back with an absolutely splendid album called Journey to You. We're going to play a track from it in a minute. Tell us what it's like being back. In, you know, it's because the, you reunited the Blow Monkeys in 2007 and seemed to be thoroughly enjoying it. Yeah, there came a point after when we broke up initially in 1990. We, it, was, it was the same. We would all reach the point where we had young children. I left London, blah, blah, blah. We'd been together. I wanted to do other things. And then there comes a point where those kids have grown up and leave home. And you think, well, I'd really like to be in a band again. Well, hang on, I've got one, you know. So I mean, that was <laughs> I remember, yeah. And we have a history and we always got on. The idea was, yeah, we're going to get together, but we're going to make new records, you know. I mean, that, that was the thing. Yeah. There's no point. I couldn't do it otherwise. So so we, we have. We've made seven new albums since we got back together. But this one just felt like, and it, occasionally it happens like that, something else came along and it just felt right, you know. It just felt like, oh, we're onto something here. I'm onto kind of on a good one so yeah. um, and a positive one. And it kind of, it's, it, it's kind of, quintessential blow monkeys in the sense of what we're known for you know which is kind of orchestral big it's been real fun and we just we just came back off a tour and we're very different now we get up in the morning and do the crossword in the band you know and we give it to mick our bass player because he's dyslexic so it lasts longer and, uh, and, we, and we but we've got this mutual history and story and there's it's it's really kind of like an unspoken thing we have we don't really have much in common outside the band we never have done which i think has kept it cool and yet we have got, we've been through this incredible experience together. So something else enters the room when we play together, you know. So and I, I don't really want to analyse it beyond that. I'm at the point now where I'm not expecting anything from it. I'm sort of enjoying 
the everyday kind of machinations of, of what you go through being in a band, getting up, going to yeah. a sound check, hanging around, as Charlie Watts used to say, for most of the time yeah. and all that. I enjoy that now. I really, I, yeah. I, I kind of, I know that I'm out of the woods now. I, I, I'm not going to have to get a proper job. <laughs> the album is really good. If your abiding memory of the Blow Monkeys is digging your scene, then this is very much in that idiom. It's super mega soul, absolutely brilliant. Peter's album, St. Christopher, is out next Friday. We're going to drop a taster onto the rolling playlist. Journey to Me by the Blow Monkeys is out right now. And appropriately enough for the two doctors, we're going to play a track called Time Storm from the Blow Monkeys <laughs> album, Journey to Me. Tell us about Time Storm, Robert. Well, I mean, you know, the, the Time Storm was the first one I wrote, and that was right at the beginning of lockdown. And like a lot of people i think i i really enjoyed the first three months of lockdown at least that kind of oh man you know, yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Man, i kind of live a bit like that mm-hmm. anyway to be honest but you know suddenly nature re-entered city centers and, and people stopped this kind of train that they were on you know and every and, mm-hmm. uh, you know i think things have changed forever but those first three months especially were kind of liberating so but also i lost sense of where we were and what we we're supposed to be doing and all that so time storm was 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 just a song of about being uh, slightly out of it, you know, not not really knowing where we were going and where we'd been. You know. Chaps, really great to talk to you, and they, they will be back later in the show with their favourite records of all time. Exactly. Here is Time Storm. God knows just what we're going to find When we go looking Diamonds in my eyes Spinning round and round we sail On some cosmic carousel Now, we do like to draw your attention to the new tunes now and again, and we've got a right one for you right now as COP26 ends. The DJ and remixer Right On and his Gucci sound system have partnered with Jarvis Cocker to release the first ever sustainable banger, they're calling it. <laughs> Let's Stick Around is a pounding wall shaker with a message, i.e. burn less stuff. Right On is very much a name to trust in the electronic dance music sphere. Uh, he's been there since Electro Clash and before, and this is a marriage made in carbon neutral heaven. It's streaming now. Have a listen. Don't forget to offset your carbon. This is Right On, the Gucci sound system, and Jarvis Cocker with Let's Stick Around. It's more of a question of being on our side. Because then if what we say is right, at least we all Time for more Cold War Steve, or Chris, as you're known, <laughs> which is still confusing Secret us. Oh, yes. So we have ju- with that, don't worry. <laughs> so we have Journal of a Plague Year in the studio, which we're waving about. It is incredible. It follows Festival of Brexit and a Pratt's progress. What made you want to document 2020 and the time of the pandemic? As with Brexit, where most of my work came, my, my anxieties of Brexit mm. channeled all my work up to the beginning of 2020. Once 
ostensibly Brexit had happened then. So people were saying, what are you going to do now, Mr. Remainer, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. I was like, well, you know, these people are still in, in government. I'm still going to hold them up to light. I'm still going to channel my anxieties into my art. Admittedly, probably less so. I'm not going to be on Twitter as much maybe for 2020. It's a slow news year, perhaps. And lo and behold, <laughs> along yeah. comes the pandemic. And and true to form, the uh, government that presided over the disastrous uh, Brexit withdrawal were still in charge and were responsible for the country's handling of the, the pandemic. And again, I just switched. It's amazing how transferable the kind of images I was doing in relation to to Brexit could be transferred to the pandemic. It hit home because my wife is a carer for the elderly and Mm -hmm. and Alzheimer's in a care home. And and in kind of March, April, when the pandemic was was, was kind of taking hold and she was coming home and reporting how another resident had passed away because of Mm -hmm. COVID and how Mm -hmm. how they were bringing in people from hospital and putting them into the home without having tested them. And that person, had, it turned out, had been positive. And mm, it just mm. completely ripped through the care home and she was getting distressed. And none of this was, was reported in the news. Matt Hancock came out and said that he'd put a protective ring around the mm, care system. Mm. And, it, and it's, you know, moments like that where it's like, no, you fucking haven't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just, and that was it. People always comment and say, they know when I'm uh, angry about something because my output, increases significantly okay, yeah. and right. it, at that that point when it was just relentless and I was just churning out these really as a, a way of trying to control yeah. my anger at what yeah. they were doing yeah. so the next book I thought would have to be a kind of record or a chronicle of covid um kind of thing really to to, yeah. to document it all because most of the mainstream media didn't at that point anyway document any of this that was happening well, what's really powerful for me is that, like, it's not just a right sideways look of satire. It's really kind of brutally mm, angry. And mm. Again, I've opened the page at random and found 23rd of March 2021. It's the anniversary of the first lockdown. 126,000 deaths have been attributed to COVID-19 in the UK. And your piece of art is Johnson and Carrie Simmons sitting around a birthday cake, which has got 126,000 in candles on it. Mm. And the band, the mariachi band playing behind them is Fred West Harold. Harold Shipman and Hitler. And also sitting at the table is Sam Allardyce in a leather jacket. And there's a card on the table that says one amazing year. And it's like, it is brutally absurd and yeah. horrific, but it's kind of like the idea of how, how little they care. Johnson was more concerned mm. with his mm. divorce and more concerned with his popularity than the fact that tens of thousands mm. of people die. And even Dominic Cummings is enraged by it. But, even that guy. <laughs> I mean, what is hard hitting about it is I laughed out loud but it's also, uh, it's so serious. It's, it looks like a spoof and yet you realise. So the book is chronological. You can mm. open it at random, but what is its strength, I think, because it starts in March, doesn't it, 2020, and it carries on. And all of the captions are the real things that happened during yeah. those months and the atrocities, mm. <laughs> the fact that we, we have a very malign group of people who are, you know, overseeing all this stuff. But you do, as uh, Andrew says, when there's Harold Shipman, you know it's horrific, but it's it, yeah. it becomes this sort of horrific comedy yeah. in a way. It was it's funny as well, well as being so angry. Peter Capaldi was just saying on the show earlier that he he didn't think that this government mm. could be satirised and mocked. He wouldn't want to try and do a Malcolm Tucker with it. But I think Cold War Steve actually does that. It's like it is another level of brutality that's required to capture it. Yeah, I think you're right. It, and I did get some some knockbacks about including someone like Harold Shipman in a piece mm. because. It's wrong, obviously, but he is Britain's most prolific serial mm-hmm. killer. Mm-hmm. All of his victims were, were elderly and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. 
Therefore, he's the perfect metaphor yeah. for the government's handling of the pandemic. And also just to, I think, the starkness of him looking at, at the viewer mm. in my pieces adds a chilling factor to it because that's what's needed, I think. And like yeah. you said, we can't, when all this began, I, I, I thought, I can't satirise COVID. I can't put these pieces out because people are dying, people are scared. Mm-hmm. How do I go about releasing things that aren't going to cause extra distress to people? But mm. actually, um, it was it was not, wasn't just catharsis, but but other people could also share their because everyone was being kept apart, of course, as well. So to have that contact with strangers really over things like Twitter and, and commenting about mm. you know what is this person doing? Why are they? saying one thing and another and it's, it's this great outpouring of anger and disbelief but also being able to laugh about it I think is a probably a, a quintessentially British thing to do almost yes, g- yes. gallows humour perhaps yeah. but it possibly helped people get through the, mm. the worst of it Have you ever had any comeback from these people? Just see Fadden ring you up and uh, say you still put me in <laughs> still leave it out not though people always ask that and well he does know about me because people mm. on eastenders follow me the, the guy, <laughs> oh wow that's the, good the guy who plays e and b or follows me so i yeah. can't believe that they're not in the <laughs> eastenders canteen sharing images and things like that. <laughs> but i haven't had a, a cease and desist or any threats from him but i, I would hope that he would see that I use him in complete reverence, you know, because <laughs> well, he's a character, the, it, isn't he? It's, it's he's a, the character, and yeah. he's people often ask, "What well, is that you?" And the, he is me in the pieces. So right. he's he's always at the back, looking on in complete disbelief or incredulity, and, and, and he's your avatar. Yeah, he's 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 me in the piece. Really. So I hope that he would understand that he's the hero of the piece. And I'm not using him in the same way that I would, for instance, Jacob Rees-Mogg or, or someone. Yeah. It's often the case as well that cartoonists or you know impressionists or actors say, often say that it's really awful when I'm doing somebody and trying to be really brutal, and then they send me a message saying, "Oh, it was so great! I loved it so much. Can oh. you send me the cartoon of me <laughs> where I was, you know, a pig in a trough of my own filth? I love yeah. it so much. Have you ever had any of that? Yeah, there's been a few <laughs> of that, and it's 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 just staggering. I think the first one, Piers Morgan, oh, loved God. the fact that I put, he would love the fact that I put him in one. But then I really wrapped it up with him when he had this fixation on Meghan Markle, and I really made it. And he ended up blocking me. <laughs> um, Achievement unlocked. <laughs> but I've had some really weird emails from people that have have been in my work, very high up in uh, kind of vote leave circles and things like wow. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love your work. And uh, I love that one with me in it. I was wondering if I could buy it. And I'm thinking, you are depicted as a pig in the middle of hell. You know? <laughs> uh, and you're asking me, you want this? I mean, this know, is I just I ignore thought. them because I can't get involved. Yeah. But the frightening thought that I think that they actually would quite like to be a pig in the middle of hell. They're not bothered yeah. by it at all, Absolutely. are they? No, yeah. no. As long as they were sitting on the top yeah. of the pile of pigs in hell. So what yeah. next for Cold War Steve, Chris? Busy time of the year for mm-hmm. me. It's what I do for a living now, being mm. Cold War Steve. So uh, <laughs> Christmas is when I have to try and make the uh, money. To, <laughs> it's for where the, you sell the jigsaws. For the, for the family, <laughs> um, which is when the yeah. jigsaws come in and yeah, uh, yeah. the calendars and, and all that sort of stuff. So I've been doing all the artwork because I want to have new artwork in things like the calendars and stuff. So, so that was solid work. And it's difficult because I'm trying to do new work when there's things happening in the news that I think mm. I've got to do something on that. Mm. <laughs> you know, there's almost an expectation that I need to do 
something on what's happening. So a lot of sat here working away constantly into yeah. your small hours of the night. But I don't know what will happen next year. We'll see. See what, yeah. what pans out. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I'm pretty sure, sure of is there won't be a lack of material anytime yeah. soon. I think you may be right. <laughs> <laughs> Journal of a Play Gear is out now. It's a total tonic. Yeah. <laughs> it's both ghastly and hilarious and all everything. Somehow my anger comes out. It's like the Cold War Steve Christmas annual that you it should is. get next to yeah, the Beano in yeah. your stocking. But your stocking's, totally got, recommend but your stocking's it. got nothing in it but coal and some fluff and the still Cold War <laughs> yeah. Steve Christmas annual. That will hey, be a, a vision for our times Christmas. there. By the way, I've, I've realised that calling in Cold War Steve is a bit like calling Kevin Rowland's Dexy. Yeah. You know, calling uh, you know, Ian McCulloch it. Echo. It's not right, is he? His name is Chris. Cold it's War Steve is a character. It's Chris. Anyway, as regular listeners will know, we are collecting the greatest tunes of all time from our guests. Steve, what is your greatest tune of all time? Well, I, I had the email requesting this and I was like, how oh, is that uh, Earth Door pick the favourite song of all time, which everyone must, must go for the same thing. Yeah. But I thought, right... What am I feeling today? And I've gone for GMF by yes. uh, <laughs> John Grant. And because... it's a podcast, so you can say what the title yeah, sounds like. I can. Say. It's not yeah. like some sort of radio edit where no, it's <laughs> not. No. What, what was it? The radio edit was, I am the greatest living person or something. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> greatest <What>? motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, it's a great tune. It's a, it's a good, great, yeah, really good tune. And it, it's a banger. It's a great tune. But also, I think it's, it's, it's dealing with his... Um, you know, self-esteem issues and things mm, in relationship. Mm. But I sometimes transfer that into my own self-esteem issues with doing what I do now. And I do have sometimes imposter syndrome and self-esteem mm, issues. Yeah. Things. Mm. And it's like, right, let's put that on. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm the greatest <laughs> motherfucker because I'm not, but but it just gives that, that, that kind of... Um, Words to live by. Again, the curse, the curse of clearance has got in the way, but we're going to put it on the rolling playlist. It's not just the guest who gets to recommend a tune or two, though. Uh, we get to do it now and again ourselves. Personal favourites, Confidence Man, the 21st century Antipodean delight, <laughs> are returning with a new album, Tilt, in April. It's a full, faithful re-recording of Tilt by Scott Walker. No, it isn't. It's their own <laughs> tunes. The first track's out now. I can report it is a proper ecstatic groover, exactly what I, for one, needed at the minute. It's called Holiday. This one we can play, and it sounds like this. And we have a couple of new albums to look at this week. Damon Albarn, who has his fingers in more pies than Jeffrey Cox, releases <laughs> The Nearer the Fountain, More Pure the Stream Flows. Today, 11 tracks of low-key intimate pop, which were intended to be giant orchestral pieces. And then the pandemic happened, and he had to do it in a small room at home, like everybody. And thanks to the excellent newsletter, The New Q, C-U-E, from my old Q magazine comrades, I stumbled upon Curtis Harding, a Michigan soul man transplanted to Atlanta and a former backing musician for CeeLo Green. His third album, If Words Were Flowers, is out now, and it's quite the discovery. Again, we can't play the tunes because of the curse of clearance, but we're going to put them onto the rolling playlist. Let's start with Damon Albarn. Sean. Damo has so many disparate identities and brands, but you can actually all tell it's him, can't you? What did you think of this rather sombre record? I think sombre is a good word for it. It is quiet at points, it's contemplative, and it's 
extremely sad. Mm. I put it on and I actually felt quite heartbroken for mm. Damon. Um, I th- I like the fact that there are these distinct differences. We we talked about the good, ba- the bad, and the queen, didn't we, mm. a year or so ago? And there's a lot of swagger and bravado to that. There's a lot of front that he has, which people would know from Britpop favourites. Blur yeah. that version of Damon, but mm. this is the kind, the slightly broken, the very close to Mike, mm. vulnerable Damo. Mm. Damo. Um, I think the the singles, um, the tracks have been released ahead of this mm. album are absolutely incredible. And it's taken me a while to get into the lot of the sort of the jazz, the free jazz moments in there. I found it quite sad. I think it's beautifully recorded and I think it's, the songs are absolutely beautiful and they're crafted because he knows how to do mm. this stuff. Now. He Obviously, he writes a song a day, this man. He just yes. does not stop. But there are overwhelming f- feeling of... Um, Disappointment in it. Yes, uh, to change just, my mood. Not that you're disappointed. Disappointed in the track. It's just, it's about, obviously, it's about the pandemic and yeah. it's about loss. It's about grief. Death and loneliness. Yeah. And it is, it's quite hard at points. Well, the, the album title comes from a John Clare poem, Love and mm-hmm. Memory, which begins, Thou art gone, the dark journey that leaves no returning, tis fruitless to mourn thee. Damon borrows a few lines uh, for the title track, The Beautiful Past Left So Desolate Now. And he says he's been on his own dark journey uh, while making this record. Uh, for all that, I actually found it. I, I thought it was lovely. Mm. I mean, it starts. It's extreme low here, mm. but the kind of light peaks in quite early. There's a ju- beautiful song called "Royal Morning Blue." I think. Yes, hang on. Which uh, it's like track three or something, and like the light starts to peak in quite mm-hmm. early. Did you find it a bit overwhelming in the sense of the the, the atmosphere of sadness? I mean, even the artwork is grey, isn't it? Yes, I th- I, I, but I think that that's what he needed to do and that's what he needed to reflect. But if you are expecting the bangers and the stomping around and the Cockney mm. accent, you are not going to get it. You're going to get this much darker, get into a darker place. And you can hear that a lot of the vocals say they sound like first takes or second takes. There's yeah. a lot of whispering, the spoken word in there. And again, we get a bit of free jazz. There's, there's a track called The Cormorant. And I usually love that sort of stuff, something that is quote unquote difficult. Yeah. And yet I did find this really quite, did I want to be in the place that he he is obviously in during this record. Did I want to go there? Because it's um, yeah, got a lot of depth, but it is difficult. Obviously, Damon is on, verging on the musically incontinent. He's bad as Prince for putting yeah, stuff out yeah. all the time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, the last kind of solo, clearly delineated mm, solo mm. record was Everyday Robots in 2014, which is really not much more than him and a very small selection of instruments. Extremely low key. This is fuller and bigger mm. than that, but it's not quite the gigantic orchestral landscapes of Iceland epic that I think he, he, he wanted to make. But for all of that and for all of its sort of intense melancholy, I think it's a really, really rewarding record. I've, I've Since it came out this morning, <laughs> I've played it over and over. Over. Steve, what, what did you think? Have you managed to have a listen? Yeah, I've had a, a brief... I, I listened to it when I bought The Dog uh, over mm. the park this morning. Damon, like you've said, he produces so much stuff and, and all of it is interesting. I really like Good, the Bad and the Queen and, and I was into Blur back in the day. And this, I think, is, is the Damon album that I would want to listen to now, the more contemplative, the less chirpy Cockney geezer type. But but with Walking in the Dog and listening to it and with the wind and, and it really is quite magnificent like beautiful really and, and yeah i mean i do think he's he's obviously very talented i think he's a bit of a knob um, <laughs> <laughs> um but that aside i think this is a, a yeah. he's one that definitely i will will be listening to a lot more uh, mm. and finding mm. different and, and i do like that listening to, to to music like that now that makes me feel more miserable in a way <laughs> or, or <laughs> I don't know. It's just just more powerful. I, I, I just it just felt very um, like you said, but very intimate with the, his vocal. It's not perfect. It's 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 yeah, quite close to the mic sometimes. And, yeah, mm, and I think mm. that actually 
works makes it better. I have to admit, I didn't like Everyday Robots because I thought it was lacking in ambition and a bit sort of maudlin. This, I think, is is brilliant. Really, really good. What about this Curtis Harding then, Sean? You, uh, this is, uh, Curtis Harding is, a, uh, in many ways, a kind of very traditional soul voice. It's a vintage sound. It's lo-fi. The album's called If Words Were Flowers, and that could come out in 1968. <laughs> You quite liked it, didn't you? I really quite like this. Um, there are points where you can you can do the list of people he sort of sounds like, and yet it is very much this Curtis Harding I wasn't aware of until mm. this record, and yet he's got a bit of black exploitation, he's got a bit of Marvin, he's got a bit of Al Green, all these different things, but it diffuses into something that I thought was really clever. Yeah, it's funny. It's got the soul swagger, but it doesn't sound like a pastiche. And some yeah. of it was just truly this this person is making music that makes you feel happy. Yes. And it's beautifully produced. It's really fantastic sounding. And I actually played some Detroit Emeralds next to it to, to see what my oh, modern uh, ears would trust. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and in terms of what they're after. And it was, it was so close. I mean, mm. it really is so beautifully done. Um, there's a track, is it Can't Hide It? Yes. Um, which has these fan- fantastic backing as well. And the more you listen, the more you you see what the melodies are doing the harmonies are doing and, and the the music underneath how is everything is sort of this wonderful collage of that particular wonder. track it's an example of a, a a subgenre of the male soul vocal that we don't really hear anymore which is the the true late motown sad yeah, banger it's very stacked it's very stacked yeah. it's very it's virgin on the northern soul it's a guy enwrapped in his own tragedy <laughs> and yet the tune isn't a kind of uh, you know sixty BPM sort yeah, of it's not uh, walk on by is it? No, no, it's, no, it's, it's... <laughs> it has more in common with the night by Frankie Valli. And it, yes, absolutely, and it reminded me of when Lenny Kravitz was good. Do we all remember that bit in the nineties when moment. he? Yes, that there was brief a brief moment, moment where he worked with Vanessa Paradis on her album, mm-hmm. the one that I've forgotten the name of. This so something of that when Lenny did good. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's coming from that, and I thought this was rather glorious, and it really, really cheered me up on well, a it, wet Thursday. Among the things. I I scribbled on the back of my hand in Barrow, which sounds a bit like the temples or the Alala's psychedelic soul. You know, that kind of mm. reverberation of like the white counterculture, the black counterculture, they're pinging off each other. Yeah. In a similar space to Michael Kiwanuka, where you bring in that so. incredibly yes. rich, conscious soul from the end, basically the bit between the end of Motown era and about 1976 when synthesizer mm. arrived, that hugely neglected area yeah. that has kind of been slightly approached every now and again, they never quite get it right. This is a really majestic version of that. Also reminding me of Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man, mm-hmm. but he's not trouble. You know, he's, he's a bit perky. He's, he's a, trouble, but he's, he's a bit... troubled man. Is what he is. He's not trouble man. Maybe Cold War Steve. What did you think? Do you have a manager to have a listen to this one? I listened to it last night while I was I was working, so I'd not come across uh, him before either. But I was struck by the the production of this. is is, is magnificent, isn't it? The mm-hmm. horns and the strings and the words. It just does. It feels like a record that would have been, you know, six the kind of fifth dimension in the sixties and yeah, uh, that kind of yeah, uh, that that feel to it, which I really like. So I'm looking forward to giving it another few listens while I work. But I, first listen, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Great. Curtis Harding, check Very it out. Good. We're going to put him on the playlist. Yeah, he's well good. So we promised you that Dr. Robert and Peter Capaldi would return with their favourite records of all time. They're going to choose them now. Obviously, the man has prevented us from playing clips on the show, but we can add them to the famous rolling playlist. The link is in the show notes. Blow Monkey, Dr. Robert Howard, what is your favourite record of all time? Change it all time. It's the impossible question, as you well know. Mm. That's why we asked it. Because <laughs> today it's Metal Guru, but actually, if I'm really honest, it's a change is going to come. Sam Cooke. Yeah. I think that's hard to beat. First of all, mm-hmm. it's Sam Cooke at the height of his powers singing that song. The way it starts with that great orchestral thing 
and it's got such kind of moral weight behind it as well as a lyric mm. it's just like for me i mean it's it's hard to beat Okay, that's going on the playlist. Okay, and Peter Capaldi, what is your choice, best song of all time? Well, it's very difficult to beat Robert's choice, I think, there. (laughs) And really, you know, it is a different song every day. But I think, as Mm -hmm. of this moment, I think Lou Reed's sad song from Berlin. Okay. I think it's an incredible record because it's such brutal lyrics, but put to this almost somewhere over the rainbow kind of music and it's a, it's a real realistic sense of hope you're you know mm-hmm. one of the, one of the great albums of the 20th century it's a song that kind of lifts you out of the bleakness that he's drawn mm-hmm. with such vividness it's a real human song it's really full of soul and heart and hope which is what's required. We'll drop that on the playlist. Before we go, you should perhaps know, Peter, that Sean, my co-presenter, was in Doctor Who at one point. Oh, what were you? You'll never, oh, you have to guess. You'll never you guess. guess. <laughs> it was a, it, it's, she was a companion. Can you guess? Really? She was a companion, but not, as, a you, younger companion. not as you would usually see her. Yeah. Peter Davison was my doctor. Ah, Peter Davison. Well, I was off in rock and roll at that point. Yeah, you were in rock then. Sean, we swapped round. Sean played a very, very young age-reversed Tegan. I did, yes. Yeah, so I've been in the TARDIS reversed. too. Yes, oh, right, I'm okay. younger and younger. Yeah. She was little Tegan. Okay, all right. Tegan. Well, I know, yeah. I know grown-up Tegan. Child very Tegan. Well. Yes. Grown-up Tegan is wonderful. She's great. Send her my regards. Yeah. She's fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> Love Janet, yeah. yeah. Robert and Peter, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. The records yes, are great. So People good. go and listen you. to them. And we hope to see you in a pie shop in North London soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Thank you so much. And we're at the end of the show. What a show. It's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we ask the hairdresser for a Damon Ormond-style mullet? (laughs) And the hairdresser says, no! (laughs) And just no. I can't believe he's gone for the mullet. He's still got it. I I had a rumour he'd cut it off, but no, it's still there. (laughs) Chris, what's your closing time chatter? MasterChef The Professionals <laughs> was back on Monday. I know this isn't probably pop culture, but it's something that irked me this week. <laughs> MasterChef The Professionals yeah. was back on Monday. They put the first half on and then put an episode of EastEnders and expect you to come back for the second half. Mm-hmm. And they've split it in half and it's just sacrilege. Just leave it alone. <laughs> put it on as one. You'd yeah. think that I might like EastEnders because of my strong affinity to Stephen McFadden, yeah. but I haven't yeah. watched it since 1989. <laughs> so um, just leave MasterChef The Professionals alone, please. That's my, yeah. my I believe that's known as hammocking in the trade. Oh, Yeah, oh. you put something that people want to watch and then mm. something they might not want to watch in the middle and then... Do the <laughs> that's it, yeah, yeah. Stop yeah. hammocking us to the BBC. Yeah. Hammocking, stop the hammocking. Yeah, yeah, man. Andrew, what's your closing time, Chatter? I want to talk about the Beano exhibition. Oh, yes. At Somerset House. I'm not kidding. It's the greatest comics release. It's walkthrough thing I've is ever it? been to. Yeah. It is magnificent. It's beautiful. It's got depth. The idea is it combines actual works of modern art mm. with the pages from the Beano. So, you know, Leo Baxendale and Ken Reed, the actual artwork. Mm. You know, artwork from 1938, Dudley Watkins. You can see the pen scratches, all the rest of it. But what really enlivens it is it's polydimensional. So we get modern art from Sarah Lucas and mm. you know Gilbert and George mm-hmm. and all kinds of people we get the context uh, of you know what the Beano said about the class system what it said about home life what it mm-hmm. says about reality and surrealism but the best thing about it is it is kids first it's not you know this is not like an art gallery happening it mm. is like designed around kids it's funny it's got things to make and do it's got the BOMA 
which is the Beano Museum of Modern Art, right. where they put all the modern art yeah. in there. It's inspired, you know, the kind of stuff that is ridiculous and, and, and surreal, but also yeah. everyday. And they've surrounded it with bits of classic Beano of the various Beano characters going to art galleries and going, this is ridiculous and stupid, isn't it? Oh, no, I've accidentally uh, spilt the contents of my, my lunchbox on the floor and people are taking photographs of it. That kind of thing. So yeah. it both celebrates and debunks modern art. And modern art celebrates the Beano from which it draws. The music is put mm. together by uh, Bob Stanley. Ah. And uh, there's a rec- recreation of Beano's record shop from Croydon. Of course, their favourite record shop. When I went in there, yeah. it was playing On a Chicory Tip by Denim. <laughs> and I stood there amazed. And then they played Trouble by Shampoo. Very, very Beano. Oh, it, that's very Beano. And it made me realise that we live in a Beano world. Beano is reality. <laughs> reality is a poor reflection. I wish we did. Honestly, it's world. so wonderful. Yeah. And okay. also on the wall is the letter, that, the cease and desist letter they sent to Jacob Rees-Mogg for stealing the Beano's intellectual property by looking <laughs> like Walter the Softy from Dennis the Menace. <laughs> uh, you know, the infringements were the glasses, the hair. Yeah. Constantly going on about how successful your dad is and snootiness. And it's like, absolutely (laughs) right. I cannot recommend it highly enough. You've got to go. Everybody listening to this podcast must Mm -hmm. go to it. It is the greatest thing. And it genuinely moved me to tears. (laughs) The the achievement that is the Beano. Wow. That's what I'm saying. I will get a ticket. How about you, Sean? Well, Grimes has formed an AI girl group named NPC, which I think is a car park. (laughs) 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 And I just thought, oh, have you? And she's (laughs) she's worked on something and something's got a title, a drug from God, of course it is. But did anyone say the gorillas? Did anyone say the banana splits? It's like you can, yeah, it's it's a cartoon. She's basically just made up a cartoon group and she's stuck two letters AI in front of it to be all modern and tech. There's absolutely no proof that there is any AI in anything I have read in what these characters are going to do and how are they going to be so intelligent and computery and make their songs. It sounds like an absolute ruse to me. I'm less interested in artificial intelligence than I'm interested in artificial stupidity, which would be much more fun. <laughs> have you actually heard any of An it? AS group AS, would be good, artificial yeah. stupidity. We've, we've, we've dealt with a lot of that in our, in our, in our careers. Haven't I we? haven't as yet heard Drug of God or whatever it's called. And I think having been put off, it's, just, it's, just, it's like, you know when someone not very good writes an essay and they qualify it with a load of stuff? Oh, I've got an AI girl group and that qualified with because it's going to be this and it's going to be better than this and it's going to be this and it's like no you need the tunes you actually probably need a human to front it or a cartoon ask yeah. Damon Albarn that he did that the music is going to turn out to be just a, a whole load of glitches and bleeps isn't it <laughs> that's that's what we're going to be getting Duran Duran did an AI video for yeah. their single and it was an AI video for a single oh dear you I think I, mean? I think uh, Grimes' AI group is going to make the kind of music that you hear you know when you take cake on the day to day, the music when they took the bit where they take the drug cake and it makes me. Or she's going to get sued by NPC uh, car parks. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, that could happen. NPC sound system. Absolutely, and on that note, that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to Cold War Chris. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for phoning in, and your book is fantastic. Also, thank you to Doctors Robert and Peter Capaldi. It's been interstellar. Certainly has. From me, Andrew, producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. The Culture Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison and Sean Pattenden. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese, and the theme tune was by Kelly Dickinson. Yelena Sofronievich is on a well deserved holiday. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>